Great. Wonderful to be with you again, and a wonderful privilege to speak to you about Jesus. If you have a Bible, um, please open it to Romans chapter 7, um, which is in the back kind of quarter of your Bible. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, don't worry, it'll be behind me on the screen. Um, if you're using a Bible on your phone, I guess that's fine. Um, I've never downloaded the Bible app. I see that as a trait of holiness. Um, but... <laughs> Also, don't feel any concern about using your contents page. Contents pages in your Bible are awesome. Please use them if you don't know where Romans is. Um, Also, if you don't own a Bible um, and want one, please talk to me. I will buy you one, probably with Alan's money, Um, but I will buy you one nonetheless. Um, Alan kind of publicly teases me uh, for having my knees out all the time. Um, I actually chickened out, but I thought I'd put like two post-it notes, like, hi, Alan, Um, but... I shaken out in the end. Um, just before we get stuck in, I'll introduce myself. I'm Johnny. Um, I'm the student pastor here. Um, shout if you're a student. Yeah. My sheep, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Um, I'm married to a pregnant wife, very pregnant wife called Ashley. She's over there. She was just up here. Um, I didn't know she was doing that. That makes sense. She was just up here. So you've seen her. Great. Um, so soon I will finally have an excuse for not responding to emails. I'll have a baby. Um, so that'll be great. So today in, in, in Romans 7, really good news today. Very, very good news. Um, so say good news. Good job, you're awake. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Um, Please help us as we look at it and help us to get to the bottom of what you are saying to us and how it impacts our lives. Amen. I am deeply suspicious of stuff that claims to be straightforward, claims to be easy. The last thing I attempted that claimed to be straightforward was assembling a shoe rack. Um, Granted, I may have made the quite large mistake of buying it from B&M, but... (laughs) I found the instructions themselves to be really testing. Um, instead of printing them in various languages, like IKEA, um, B&M adopted to save money by printing them in no languages at all. Um, just jaunty pictures of cartoon heads um, assembling the shoe rack. But these cartoon heads, they made a mockery of me. Absolute mockery. They made this job look very easy. I didn't. Um, when I finished, I realized I'd put the legs on the top it was, it was a shambles. Um, what sounds straightforward often isn't. Um, like any husbands in the room, have you ever been asked by your wives to go find something upstairs? <laughs> I, I've never felt more panic, I tell you. Um, when I tell Ashley that I can't find it and she gets up to find it herself, oh, panic. Absolute panic. <laughs> now, now, in a much more profound way, as we go through this morning's passage, which is on the screen, um, which as they go is pretty straightforward, um, you may look at kind of areas of your life where you find it hard, um, places that you get discouraged, and you could find that this sounds suspiciously easy. Um, if you don't, don't worry. Um, if you do, don't worry. Um, once we've kind of worked through these, these first six verses of Romans 7, we'll think for a few minutes about why it's so hard when it sounds so simple. We haven't gathered here to visit cloud cuckoo land. Um, We want the voice of heaven to speak into the real world, the world in which we live our lives. So just a few helpful things for us. I've got a clicker. That's probably useful. Two helpful things before we read. Just a few helpful things for us to understand um, before we actually read the passage. The first is that Paul, who wrote this book, is directly explaining what happens when you become a Christian. And that's kind of 
exactly what we're looking at today. He's explaining that when we come to Jesus, we don't just believe a message to be true. When we believe there is a powerful work of the Spirit in us, a seismic change that changes us to the core. Now, in some senses, that's quite kind of familiar language. I guess you probably heard the phrase born-again Christian. Um, but in this part of Romans, Paul's explaining what a massive change that is. Sometimes we kind of have to catch up with that change. Because when we believe in Jesus, we are joined to Jesus. His story, uh, the gospel, the story, his, his cross, his resurrection, they become our story, our history. So that's number one. The second helpful thing to understand before we start is that Paul is explaining that radical change by asking questions that we actually may just not be that interested in. You see what I mean? If we look around our passage, take verse 7 for example, is the law sinful? Has that ever bothered you? Do you wake up on a Tuesday morning and think, is the Jewish law from 1500 BC sinful? Take verse 13, for example. Did the law which is good become death to me? Has that been on your radar this week? Ever? (laughs) Through this passage, um, you're kind of bound to see the law. It comes up again, 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 again. So it has to be central to making sense of it. And, And don't switch off because we don't care about the Jewish law. If we come at this passage like, I don't care about the law. I've got my own questions about my real life now. We actually try and make Paul's answers answer our questions. And it, it kind of won't make sense. It's like in a maths problem. Lizzie, you'll help me out. I, I was teaching Lizzie some maths. If we've got question two plus two, answer. <laughs> answer. Four, amazing. So good. Um, and we actually go, you know what? I don't actually care about that question. I've got bigger questions. I've got questions of life, like two plus three. Um, You'll kind of come at that and the answer won't be correct, right? If we just slap our question two plus three and the answer of four won't be correct. We have to match what we want answers to, to the questions that Paul is answering. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. We can't kind of insert our own questions. And I think there is a danger for us as we read um, that we'll come away from it and be like, oh, great, that was nice theology. Thanks. I know a bit more. Great. I'll be on my way. But if this passage was only for Jews who follow all these rules in the Old Testament, One, it wouldn't be the Bible. And two, it's just not how Paul works. He's talking to me here. He's talking to you here. He believes there's truth for our 21st century lives here. So let's get stuck in. Verse 1, Paul gives us a principle. Great. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Paul's aim here is to first clarify our relationship to the law. We may be fairly clear on that. We may be fairly clear that we are not under Jewish law. We we aren't tempted to start celebrating Jewish festivals or start trimming the corners of our beards or clear the seafood and sausages from the fridge. But we're 100% clear on that. However, if you ask what is our relationship to the rules, we may understand a little bit more of where he's coming from. If if you're here and you're not following Jesus, I, I promise you you'll be following something which has its own set of rules. And if you are a Christian here, what part does God's rules have in your life today and how do you relate to them? That's kind of where we're going. And this is applicable to all of us here, whether you love Jesus or you hate him. You may be here thinking, Christianity, this God stuff, it's just a bunch of rules. If you follow them, you go to heaven. And if you don't, you go to hell. And that is that point, that that thought is exactly what Paul is addressing. 
Now, the principle Paul gives here is clear, and he expects us all to take it at face value. A law is only binding to the living. If you're a lawyer here, any lawyers? Acklin? Great. We've got one. Great. If you're a lawyer here, you might be thinking, actually, Johnny and Paul, when you die, your estate can be sued, and you can have obligations. But that's overcomplicating it. Uh, Paul's making kind of... <laughs> Paul's making a core point, a principle that he kind of expects everyone to accept, is that death ends obligation. If someone dies, we don't expect them to fulfill their promises to us. If someone makes a contract with someone, we don't expect them to fulfill it personally, personally keep it. Death ends obligation. And he fleshes this out in an illustration in verses 2 and 3. Let's read. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, I think that the reason that Paul is using a woman here in this illustration is that under Jewish law, a woman couldn't initiate a divorce. Um, That meant that a woman could not extricate... um, release herself from a marriage unless her husband died um she would always be a married woman and i'm not saying that to like you know shock you i'm saying that because it's super important to understand the passage today there was no way a woman could by her own volition her own desire her own will end a marriage but biblically and logically marriage doesn't survive death right if actually my wife dies i can't commit adultery to her no matter how much i loved her no matter how much i was devoted to her or even how happy I was, I am completely free to marry another. If you're thinking, I get it, but so what? You're in luck. Paul's given the principle, he strengthened it with an illustration, and now he applies it here in verse 4. So, let's read. Verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. I see uh, four stages here. One, we were married to the law. Whoa, Johnny, I'm single, back off. I'm not married. I hear you. But the language here in, in verse 4, belong to another. That word belong is actually the same in the original Greek as marry in the verses above. Paul's saying we belonged, we were married to the law. And this applies to everyone, not just Jews. No one escapes this. You either belong to the law or you belong to Jesus. We all worship something. We all belong to something, whether it's sex, money, power, alcohol, drugs, uh, social media, a football team. Um, we all belong to something. And Paul's point here is that we either belong to Jesus or we don't. We belong to the law. And the law is a terrible husband. Um, I have a little joke here that says, I would know I'm one, but it's not very funny. Um, he, 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 he not only gets nothing wrong, he also never dies. See, in Jewish law, uh, if a man, for example, commits adultery, he's killed, therefore releasing the wife. But the Jewish law is perfect. It will never die, but it, it's perfect. But it also demands perfection. Never encourages, never loves, never gracious. And the Bible explains why God gave humanity the law as a peace treaty. Now, don't switch off. I know this sounds boring. I promise you it's not. So when a king conquers another country, he makes a peace treaty. 
And that peace treaty has three parts. Firstly, we've got benefits to the conquered people. Um, that might be protection, shelter, peace. And with God, it's peace with God. It's being his, belonging to him. And then we've got number two, the obligations to fulfill. This might be um, worshipping the king who's conquered them or uh, working for the king who's conquered them. Um, and with, with God, it, it was the law. That's our obligation. Our obligation was to, was to follow all these rules. That's our obligation. And then the third part, the penalty clause, when the obligations haven't been met, that's, that might be kind of taking back of the benefits. The king might wipe out the country. And with God, it's death that we won't be his forever. And therefore, one day, we will die. So that's what we're stuck in. That's our kind of marriage to the law. That's number one. Now, number two, kind of like um, when someone waves at you and, and you wave back, but then you actually realize they're waving at someone behind you. Um, the law was actually waving at Jesus. It's not pointing at salvation. It's pointing at Jesus and, and it's waving at Jesus. The law was actually showing that we need Jesus to die for us. So number two, we have died with Christ. It's why we must be baptized by full immersion because we were under the water. We died with Jesus. The law can't die, so we die to it. That marriage covenant has ended. We have died. It is past tense. When we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, when we turn from our old life in repentance and faith, when we do that, God unites each of us to Christ in his death. Our death, he dies. Remember our peace treaty. Number two, the obligations. Jesus lived a perfect life, never once broke the law, never once did anything wrong. He perfectly fulfills the obligations. And number three, the penalty clause. He paid the penalty. He died. The punishment that was rightfully ours, the death, he died, he paid. And we, we don't even watch this kind of from afar, kind of even thankfully, we are joined with him. And because of our principle from verse 1, we know death ends. Obligation, got a few, great, you're listening. Um, death ends obligation. Our obligation under the law, it's severed. It's completely severed. The penalty of the law is paid. We have died to it, therefore we have no obligation to the law. That relationship of condemnation is over. But there's more. Stage three, we are raised with Christ into new life so that a new relationship, a new marriage can begin. It says in verse four, to him who was raised from the dead, he hauled us up from the grave in his resurrection might. Why? So that we would belong to him, belong to another Jesus wanted you, and anything else is a lie. He loved you to the end and gave his life for you in order that we would belong to him and he to you. He did it to take you from one marriage of death into one of love and life. Everyone happy? Everyone following? So Christians don't just change their belief system when they become one. You didn't just start behaving in new ways. You know, you went to church. Um, you started singing a bit more. You found you liked drinking schlur. <laughs> you, you added worship music to your playlist. As good as all those things are, you died. You died and were raised to life into a life-giving, spirit-filled marriage. Becoming a Christian cannot be any less than all that. So finally, stage four. With that in mind, live in your new marriage, not your old one. So let's read the final two verses in our passage, verses five and six. For while 
we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. You see, uh, verse 5, I was trying to do it with my voice, but starts with for when, that's past tense. Verse 6 starts with but now, present tense. This is today, this is now, live in your new marriage. But as I said at the start, why can this be so hard when it's said so straightforwardly like that? Just live in your new marriage. Because it does sound so straightforward, even to me as I talk about it, but I, I know real life. I, I know what it's like. I know what I'm like. So two reasons why this is so hard when it sounds so simple. Number one, we treat the law as if it saves us. The challenge for us is that we're so rooted in the old way, the old marriage, that we just keep going back to it. So a key question is, why doesn't the old way of the written code, like it says in verse 6, work to save us? Is the law bad? I guess is a good question. Well, in Paul's words in the next verse, in verse 7, he says, by no means. That's kind of first century language for not a chance, mate. This isn't a preach about, like, oh, the rules are bad, let's just throw them out and just live like we want to live. That's not at all what I'm saying. You see, the law was only ever meant as a diagnostic tool. If you take your car to the garage, they'll hook it up to some fancy computer. The computer will think for a little bit, and it will print you a list of things, a list of faults with your car. Can you at that point go, marvellous, lovely job, I'll be off then? No. An accurate diagnosis changes nothing. It doesn't mean that the computer's faulty. So the law isn't bad, it's not wrong, it's not the problem. The problem is sin. It's kind of defined as anything in rebellion to God. The problem is what sin does with the law. You see in verse 5 when it says, our sinful passions aroused by the law. It says later in this, in this passage that sin seizes the opportunity through the law. Sin gets a grip on us. Sin says, stuff that's forbidden, yeah, that's the good stuff. At the Hub, our student-led gathering that we have on a Sunday evening um, in term time, uh, there's this balcony at the back with no stairs, uh, no lift. There's just absolutely no real way that you can see to get up. Um, and my goodness, you should see how much time the students invest in thinking up elaborate plans to kind of get me to leave the room or turn my back so that they can climb onto this balcony. When something's forbidden, when there's a law, sin seizes the opportunity. It goes, yeah, that's the good stuff. Sin, sin kind of takes what's good and it twists. And we worry that we might be missing out. Have you, um, have anyone in this room ever heard someone say, imagine if none of that Christian uh, stuff isn't true and you've denied yourself that for nothing? It says, you don't have to forgive. You don't have to be patient for the umpteenth time. That's too much. If anyone expects that of you, they don't know what you've been through. This time you can stand on your own righteousness and you can hold it against that person. Every single one of us has heard that voice, right? We may know that what we're doing isn't loving our neighbor, but we go along with that voice of sin that says, don't care, I'm not doing that. No one's going to tell me I should. Paul's saying, 
good law produces bad results. Sin seizes the opportunity to achieve evil through good. It takes it and it drags the law in as its unwilling accomplice. A great example of this that we see, hopefully, or probably we all know this story, is the tree in Genesis. The law comes and says, you may surely eat of any of the trees in the garden, but just don't eat of that one tree because you will surely die. The voice of sin comes and says, and I quote, did God really say, probably should add a few L's in there in my opinion, um, did God really say that you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? The obvious thing is that, um, kind of what, what we would preach I suppose, is that it's getting Eve to question God's word. But more than that, God didn't even say that. He said, you can have anything. You can have anything. But there's just one, there's just one tree you can't have. What the voice of sin does, it takes the prohibition and ignores the provision. Takes the prohibition and ignores the provision. Look at any kind of sin in our lives and you'll see it calling out the prohibition, calling out this and ignoring the provision. Sin takes what's good and it twists. I hope that was a helpful illustration. Um, but we also can't complain about the law because of the penalty for breaking it. If I, if I go to Tesco's, I'm probably what 80% of you will do straight after this meeting. Um, I'll go in there with my rucksack, I'll grab, what, what do you want, uh, pizzas, uh, energy drinks, all the good stuff, um, and find myself landed in prison for theft, I can hardly say, can I? Well, it's rubbish being in prison, and that's entirely the fault of the 1968 Theft Act. What an evil law for landing me in here. No, I, I can't blame the law for my predicament, and the fact that breaking the law means a terrible penalty for me isn't bad or wrong. It makes it bad news. Now, when I suppose, um, I suppose that when people claim that God's standards are, are kind of too high, um, it, it's about this argument. Have you ever heard people say that? Well, if God sets its standards that high, it's not my fault if I break them. It's this type of thing that Paul says, no, the commandment is good. The problem is sin. Law is good, but it exposes the sinfulness of sin. It exposes what sin really is. And the fact that that lands me in a world of trouble is not the fault of the law any more than Adam and Eve could blame the law for where they ended up. None of us can. Knowing the rules doesn't help. Loving the rules doesn't help. Really, really, really wanting to keep the rules doesn't help because knowledge can't do that. I very easily think as a Christian that I can grow in my Jesus-likeness, in my obedience as a person, as a Christian, through my own effort and keeping the rules. And that is not it. That's why I get kind of jittery when people say, I'm working on myself right now, or I'm into self-betterment. Paul says, stop, please stop, please stop. God has freed me to depend wholly on him, not to go and get on with it myself. He wants you, and we must depend on him, encountering him, spending time with him through his spirit. Life with Jesus is not an independent living arrangement. It is one of total dependency. And that's probably why you might find that this church just bangs on about life with the Spirit. It's because we will never, ever be a church that goes, just know some more. Let's do some preachers where you just know some more and you'll get there. It's about life with the Spirit, not just about total dependency on knowledge. So that's point one of why living in our new marriage is so hard. We use the law, we use the rules as a means of saving us, of sanctifying us. But only Jesus... And depending on his grace, his mercy, his spirit will do that.
Number two, we, yeah, if what Paul is saying is true, we have a stalker. Now, if you've been through this nightmare in real life, I, I really don't want to, um, uh, what's the word, belittle your trauma, the, the trauma that you've been through this illustration. But according to this passage, we have an ex, stalker sin, who very much prefers when we were married to the law, when he had uh, power over us. And that's the power of sin. It stalks us, trying to wreck our new relationship. Like me, you actually may have no experience of this, but I'm sure you've seen it in TV and films. The type that hangs around, yelling abuse, trying to split a couple up. At work, um, at home, even at church, um, it won't accept that the old relationship is over. It's disappointingly persistent. Our minds basically receiving text after text that we cannot block. You're rubbish. You always give in. You'll never change. If people knew what I know, they'll ditch you. They'll never forgive you. See what happens to your new friends then. Give up. Come back. It can't last. The kicker, you know you're a real disappointment to him, don't you? You're not alone in hearing those words because he works the script. We must remember that we have a noisy, vicious stalker in sin and we must turn up the volume on the truth, on God's word of freedom. Every sin has been nailed to the cross. We have died with Christ. When you become a Christian, you don't merely believe something. This is why it matters. This is why this theology matters. Because it's not mere belief. You have died. And you can hold on to that. He has raised you. He has hauled you from the grave. These are the facts of our new life. And everything else you hear is a lie. This is your new identity. You belong, that word belong, you belong to him. He is yours. And you know what else he does? He picks you up every time you fail and and reminds you there is forgiveness, full and free. So you're not bound to your history. You're not even bound to, to last week or what you were like this morning because you have been bound, you belong to another. And that invitation is, is there for you today. Now, whether you love Jesus or you're just looking in, you see, one of, one of Stalker Sin's favorite lines is, one day he'll leave you. One day he'll see what you're like, and he'll be off. He'll run out of patience. It's the kind of savage nonsense that stalkers say, and sin is no different, but it stings. It really stings to hear it. It's a good verse. Um, but the truth is that, that Jesus doesn't do till death do us part. Jesus only does, neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation can separate you from his love. It might feel like it, but it doesn't. If I could get the band up, that would be good, thanks. Um, So as we finish, because we all struggle with sin, um, what is our comfort when we do? Well, it's not that everyone else does it. It doesn't help that everyone else is a lawbreaker. It's not, I can't help it either, because then sin has dominion. Crucially, our comfort is not, if I try harder, then I can do it. So what is our comfort? Where do we go? To our new marriage, to Jesus, one of hope and love and security and no shifting sands. If you uh, follow Jesus this morning, we've read in verse 6, we have been released, past tense, in order that we would serve present in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. One of the great promises before Jesus came was that there would be a new marriage with new power, God's God's Spirit poured out on his people, the law being written on their hearts, not just their heads.
being lived from the inside to the out. And Paul's saying in this passage, that promise has been fulfilled in you. God has given you his spirit that having been freed from the clutches of sin and death, we might live in a new life with him every day, in every way, free from condemnation and fear, certain of his love. See, our our struggle isn't to keep this long list of rules. Our struggle is to believe and keep in step with the spirit. He does what the law cannot. He takes the diagnosis. Remember the car and the computer. He takes the diagnosis and he brings the remedy with power. Rules can never change you, but Jesus, by his spirit, can and he will. Now, if you don't know Jesus this morning, he's, he's proposing to you right now, right here. Come and die and belong to me and I to you. So we're going to respond just as the band playing. Um, we're going to have some people at the side, maybe this side, um, wanting to pray with you. Uh, if, if you want to respond to that proposal from Jesus of belonging to him, I want you to be brave. I want you to be super brave and come to the front. You can bring someone with you if you want. And we will rejoice with you. We will rejoice with you. And we will bring you to the Father in prayer. And, and for believers in this room, um, if you are feeling the effects of, of stalker sin, if you feel that he's got a megaphone um, in your mind and you're listening, we must, 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 must pray with you and, and walk with you as your church. So, so please do come out for prayer in the same space. Um, Coming to the front is, is never a sign of weakness. I really want that to be known. Coming to the front is never a sign of weakness. It's actually the exact opposite. It's a full sign of strength. To the rest of us, um, we're going to respond in worship, in thanksgiving, um, that we are released and we belong to Christ. Amen.
Thank you, Lord. Can we have the verse up that says, when Satan tempts me to despair? This verse reflects a major issue for many, many followers of Jesus. Because Satan, it's almost like he's riding on your back, whispering these lies into your spirit. And he's tempting you to give up because you are not good enough. He's tempting you to get to that place of hopelessness because you're not good enough. But this verse also gives us the answer. Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. Right now, just close your eyes and I want us to... I want us to pray to cut off the lies that we listen to. It's a lie when you think you're not good enough. Jesus died because you're not good enough. Let's just accept it, you know. We're not good enough, but Jesus is. He is the one we look to. My life as a follower of Christ, my life is hidden in Christ. So anything else is a lie from the devil. So right now, in Jesus' name, we want to cut off any lie that we might listen to that would cause us to despair, that would cause us to doubt, that would cause us to question who we are in Jesus My life is hidden in Christ. If you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are dead to the law. Your life is hidden in Christ. You are bound to him for eternity and he lives forever. That is our hope. That is our destiny. That is the reality. And we need to cut off the lies that would lead us to defeat. Jesus never leads us to defeat. He leads us to victory in him, for he has overcome. He has overcome. So Lord Jesus, right now, I want to thank you. I want to thank you that our lives are hidden in you. That our eternity is guaranteed in you and that you have guaranteed, you have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. We rebuke the lies of the evil one and we give all the glory to you. Can we sing that verse, Andy?